Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Joe Pierre, a health science clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. He has extensive clinical experience working with individuals with psychotic disorders, substance abuse, and those with dual diagnosis. He has authored over 100 papers, abstracts, and book chapters related to schizophrenia, antipsychotic medication, substance-induced psychosis, delusions and delusion-like beliefs, auditory hallucinations, and voice hearing. He's also the author of the Psych Unseen blog at Psychology Today, where he writes about the psychology of false belief. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really great to have you here. And I'm really excited about this topic area because I know this topic comes a lot in my clinical practice. And I know a lot of clinicians work with patients who have different kinds of belief systems. They sometimes talk about conspiracy theory kinds of things. And it's hard sometimes to, as a clinician to wrestle with how to work on these and conceptualize them with the patients that I work with. So I'm really looking forward to you sorting through some of these uh, concepts for us today and giving us your knowledge about the topics. Yeah, well, again, thanks for having me. I, I should say aloha, I guess, since you're uh, you're in Hawaii, right? Aloha, yeah, and you're, you're down there in Southern California, correct? That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. To begin with, I'd really like to learn a little bit more about you and who you are as a clinician and what brought your interest into this field. So let's start with that a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your personal and professional background and your, your career trajectory. Sure. So I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, I, when I was doing my undergraduate training, I was a biology major, but I was really always more drawn to the biology of the brain uh, and beyond biology, just how, how the brain works on a cognitive level. I minored in psychology. And so I had a sort of decision point back then where I did think about becoming a psychologist and applying to graduate schools. But my interest had always been more on the more severe side of mental illness. I've always had a very strong interest in psychotic disorders and the types of symptoms that psychotic patients have. And because I felt that pharmacotherapy was an important part of treatment, that sort of steered my hand and led me to medical school. And so I was one of those people who uh, went to medical school planning to be a psychiatrist from the get-go, was never really tempted by any other specialty. And so, uh, so here I am. And I think in part, my longstanding interest in psychiatry has actually really focused on these sorts of core questions about why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. And so in recent years, my academic career uh, has been more focused on the why we believe what we believe part. From a clinical perspective, I'm an inpatient psychiatrist, so I work with hospitalized patients with severe mental illness. So it makes a lot of sense that you would be interested in understanding the spectrum of thinking from false beliefs to delusions. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about how did you become interested in this academic area of false beliefs and yeah. the spectrum there. 
Well, as I said, I've, I've had this long-standing interest in why we believe what we believe, whether it's sort of factual beliefs or religious beliefs. And I, th I think in my essay for residency applications, I wrote something to the effect of that I think there's great potential to learn about normal functioning, human functioning, based on pathological states. And I think I sort of brought that from my background in genetics, you know, studying mutations to inform what, what genes do on a normal level. And so that I think is partly why I was so interested and am so interested in psychosis and delusions specifically, because I think understanding delusions and working clinically with patients who have delusions really is actually very useful right now mm -hmm. when we are working with people who don't have mental illness, but do have uh, false beliefs. And so I've always been, even though my clinical focus has been on the more severely mentally ill, I've always had a academic interest in this, what I often call the gray area between psychopathology and normality. So let's define some of these terms because they're very interesting. And I, I don't know if we look at them in terms of differences of severity or something about the phenomenology of the thinking, we can look at that. But you know, on one end, we have this idea of false beliefs and we have this idea of conspiracy theories. And then at sort of at the other end of the spectrum, we have delusions. Tell us a little bit how you conceptualize these different terms and what they actually mean. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is that the, the hardest term to define, I think, is belief mm. uh, and what a normal belief is. And, you know, I've looked uh, across the literature, not just in psychology and psychiatry, but other disciplines. And, you know, a, a sort of standard universal definition is pretty elusive. So my definition that I often use is something to the effect of I, I like to define a belief as a cognitive representation uh, about reality as it pertains to ourselves, the world around us, and the world beyond. And then I always say, just don't ask me to define what a cognitive representation is. <laughs> um, but if we start from there, if we start from a kind of universal agreement or understanding of what beliefs are, then the other terms become more easy to define and distinguish from another. Okay, okay. So from that standpoint, like how would you describe like a false belief? Well, so if we talk about beliefs being represent, cognitive representations of reality, and if we believe that reality can be, we can discern reality and decide what's real and not and true and not, uh, then truth and falsity is basically defined by evidence to support whether mm -hmm. or not that belief is true or not. Now, the fun thing about beliefs and delusions as well uh, is that there are lots of beliefs that we have that aren't falsifiable. Uh, is there a God? What happens when we die? You know, are we living in a computer simulation? <laughs> these right. kind of things. When I talk about my academic interest in false beliefs, I'm really talking about more beliefs where things can be verified and why we tend to really, it's almost about disbelief sometimes in mm -hmm. you know, facts and this whole modern phenomenon or semi-modern phenomenon of alternative facts that we're looking at now. So then false beliefs would be something that was falsifiable and uh, it, it has to do with more of a, an integrity of looking at evidence and examining evidence. And great. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Yeah. Uh, what's a conspiracy theory? 
Well, let's actually start with delusions because I, I think okay. that one's also easier to define and, and there's a more standard definition. And I think, I think in mental health, we often use the sort of quick and dirty definition that a delusion is a belief that is both false, but also fixed. So the falsity, again, is not always easy to address because not everything's falsable, falsifiable. But when we talk about delusions and they're the clinical themes that delusions tend to focus on, those are often around falsifiable topics. You know, is the CIA really out to get you? Well, you know, we can look at that from an evidentiary standpoint. Are you really the second coming of Jesus Christ? Again, we can look at that from an evidentiary standpoint. The key part about delusions, though, is also the fixed aspect. So this is the idea that you have this false belief despite this countervailing evidence. And again, there's some situations where the evidence might be more representative of consensus rather than hard data. And yet that's, that's really what this phenomenon is, a fixed false belief, which we typically see in psychotic disorders. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if we then start from there and go to conspiracy theories, uh, I think there's a number of similarities and then a, a number of important differences. So I think when we start talking, well, let me define conspiracy theory first. So when I say conspiracy theory, I often say that A conspiracy theory rejects an authoritative account of reality um, in favor of some plot involving malevolent forces and that that plot is then kept secret from the public. So when people think about conspiracy theories, it's not unusual to hold that belief with considerable conviction. So in that sense, it can be very similar to a delusion. But a delusion is by definition false, whereas conspiracy theories, those are theories. They could be true. And of course, people who do believe in conspiracy theories are fond of reminding us that there have certainly been conspiracies that have been true throughout history, whether it's sure. things like the MK Ultra Project or you know, Counter-Intel Pro uh, from the 1960s, those sorts of things. So falsity is not a requirement. I think the other important thing from a clinical standpoint is that typically when we talk about delusions, there's this long storied history about the phenomenon of shared delusions and folia de or folia sank or what have you. But for the most part, when we're working with patients with delusions, we're really talking about idiosyncratic beliefs. So we're mostly talking about beliefs held by that individual. And often the evidence to support that belief is really based on some kind of subjective experience. So if we have a patient who does believe, for example, that they're the second coming of Christ, why do they believe that? Well, because they heard God telling them in a vision or, you know, they heard it and experienced it in a dream or something like that. So I think that's very different than what we're typically talking about with conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are much more likely and are typically shared beliefs rather than something that a single individual is, you know, theorizing about. And the evidence isn't so much subjective experience, like a dream or a vision, especially in this day and age, the evidence is out there in the world, usually in the form of something you found on Google. (laughs) Um, So that I think is a really important distinction. And, And we certainly see these terms thrown around all the time. And we see words like psychosis or delusion or mass formation psychosis thrown around in a sort of colloquial sense. Um, And I think it is important to distinguish that from clinical delusions, because when we start talking about the broader phenomenology of false belief and belief in conspiracy theories, I think it's important to make clear that we're really not, for the most part, talking about mental illness. We're not talking about people with psychotic disorders. And part of the reason I think that's important, that that point is important, 
is that polls have consistently shown that here in the US, as well as other countries, belief in conspiracy theories uh, occurs at a rate of about 50% or more in the population. Wow. So I don't think it's a meaningful way to understand conspiracy theories to think that this is a mental illness phenomenon and that half the population is mentally ill. I, I, that's really not what's going on. It sounds to me like one important distinction, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, is that with conspiracy theories, you might have people really delving into digging up data and information to try to find support for their conspiracy theory. And there may be a community of people out there that they're connecting to on Facebook uh, groups or forums that they're talking about it. Whereas a delusion is really a person has an individual subjective experience and then believes something that almost anybody else would say, well, that doesn't sound at the least bit plausible. And where are you even getting this idea from? And they don't have a good course of, of evidence that they have laid out to, to prove their delusion. Exactly. And, and another thing I often say is that I don't, I don't really like the term conspiracy theorist, because mm-hmm. I think most people, not all, but most people who are drawn to conspiracy theories or believe in conspiracy theories, they're not actually really theorizing. You know, despite the Hollywood stereotype of somebody in their basement with a bulletin board and little thumbtacks and strings connecting and all these different pictures, mostly when when we're talking about the modern phenomenon, when we're talking about 50% of people who believe in conspiracy theories, we're talking about people who are going online to get information and they're reading about things and they're saying, oh, well, yeah, this sounds good to me. This this aligns with Mm -hmm. my worldview and my distrust of authoritative sources. Uh, so that's not so much theorizing as it really is just believing information that's out there. Yeah, they're believing other people who are theorizing without <laughs> doing their own theorizing. Well, so, so that's where, where things get real fun, because the, then the question becomes, why is that conspiracy theory information out there in the first place? And certainly, yeah, there might be some people who are genuinely theorizing and putting the dots together. But I think the thing that's really important to understand in the modern world is that some of that is deliberate misinformation or deliberate disinformation that's put together, put put out there purposely to steer people away from more conventional narratives. And those people may very well not even believe the information. They're just using it to manipulate people, which, you know, is fun because if you think about it, as I often say, what it really means is that there's often a real conspiracy theory behind the conspiracy theory. (laughs) Uh, And it's sort of ironically funny because oftentimes people who believe conspiracy theories don't trust in authoritative sources because they say things like, you know, if we're talking about vaccines and autism, well, you know, all the doctors are in bed with pharmaceutical companies and it's conflicts of interest, but they often don't apply that same, I'm going to call it skepticism, to where the conspiracy theory belief came from. And there's lots of evidence about ulterior motives of why that kind of information gets out there. Right. Just because something's an independent news source doesn't mean it's not biased or has its own agenda. Right. Yeah. So talking about this idea of misinformation and agendas people may have, let's start with that. And I think it's important Well, especially with what's gone on with the pandemic, how does one evaluate misinformation and maybe what might call fake news? Like, how do we know how to even look at this barrage of information we have coming from us from all sources and weeding through it? Yeah. So sometimes I like to simplify things by saying that the, the beliefs that we do hold typically come from three sources. One is just our own gut intuition. 
the second is our own personal experience. But the third, and this is a big one, is that we have to rely on information from what basically comes down to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly when we start talking about things like you know, science, climate change, vaccines, you know, what have you, the reality is that many of us don't really have the technical knowledge or the expertise to really be able to look at the data or look at studies and decide what's real or not. And so a huge part of what we believe is based on our trust of other people, right? We trust experts because we have faith that they've studied and they understand the subject matter and that they're, what they're telling us is you know, hopefully unbiased. And then we decide based on that appraisal whether or not we believe something. So the landscape that we're living in today uh, which, you know, honestly, is probably not that different than 100 years ago, except that, of course, we have this thing called the Internet now. Yeah. And instead of the four network TV stations that I watched as a kid, now we have you know, 20 or 50 or 100 or well, you know, YouTube, for, for that matter. And so there's so many different informational sources that are out there now. And what that really creates then when we start talking about the cognitive machinery of beliefs I think these days confirmation bias has become a sort of household world, right? But this is this idea that we naturally gravitate towards information that reinforces our pre-existing beliefs and intuitions, and then we sort of steer away from or swipe past information that contradicts it. And so in the internet era, when we are, quote unquote, doing our research, meaning you know doing a Google search, getting online, looking for information, this is really what I call cognitive bias on steroids. It's just an enormous enormously complicated process that often ends up reinforcing our beliefs. So there's that phrase doing our own research. And I think all too often what that really means is looking for evidence to support what we either already believe or want to believe, and then finding ways to refute information that contradicts that. That's confirmation bias, right? Right. So there's confirmation bias, but I think in in the digital era or the internet era, there's also what I like to call confirmation bias on steroids. And so we all have this natural tendency for confirmation bias, but in today's world, we also have so many different uh, sources of information that it really becomes much more easier to validate our pre-existing intuitions than it used to be. I often say something like, you know, if we were here a hundred years ago and you and I met at the local pub and I started talking to you about how I think the local government is, you know, spying on us in this kind of thing, you'd probably tell me to stop drinking and go home and sleep it (laughs) off. But today I can have that same experience and I go home and instead of going to sleep uh, to sleep it off, I get online and I start searching about local government spying on people. And suddenly now I find a lot of other people who believe this. Some of them might live in my town, others might live across the planet. And so that's part of confirmation bias on steroids. The other part is that I think we now know pretty clearly that there are these things that some people call filter bubbles that where the algorithms that we use to search for information, whether we're talking about Google or YouTube, steer us towards the information that the algorithms think we want to see based on our previous searches. And so in places like YouTube, which you know, I, I actually use YouTube quite a bit in part to listen to music and things while I work, but lots of people use YouTube for news sources, for information about healthcare, and the algorithms have changed a lot over the past decade. But one of the things that was happening at, at one time is that a lot of people were watching things on YouTube based on 
their recommended feed. So if I just had, let's say I was doing research for a, a paper that I was writing on conspiracy theories and I happened to look up the YouTube video about 200 reasons why the earth is flat. Well, based on that one search, I might now be fed more videos uh, mm. about that topic. And so that's the filter bubble aspect that, that creates this co confirmation bias on steroids. Mm -hmm. So the reality is there might be 300 people that have watched you know, confirmation about why the earth is flat, but I might be one of those 300 people if I'm searching for that. It's sending that to me and it sounds like, oh, this is something that a lot of people are talking about. There must be some truth or reality to it. Exactly. Uh, you know, another thing that happened to me personally about a year ago is I had a family member who was having a hernia surgery. And so I did a little Google search, right? I looked up for some medical information. I was kind of curious about the risks and benefits of hernias. I'd certainly heard about mesh lawsuits. So I spent maybe five minutes looking up information. And for a good couple months afterwards, suddenly I kept seeing all these different ads pop up about suing doctors and suing <laughs> the medical equipment companies about you know, hernia problems. And so that's a great example of this filter bubble idea. Based on that one search, the algorithms say, oh, you want to see this information that then gives you this very warped idea of what reality is. Another great example of this is about climate change. Right. So we, we I think some of us hear this statistic that 97 percent of climate change scientists have consensus that anthropogenic climate change exists. And yet there's a lot of people out there. I think it was in two, 2017. It was like barely half of people polled were aware that that consensus ex exists. And that's because if you go on, a, again, a place like YouTube looking for climate change evidence to not believe in climate change, there's lots of it out there. And so then your sense of consensus gets warped and you think, well, wait a minute, this is actually a contested thing in science where that's not actually the case. Joe, in some of your writings, you talk about the holy trinity of evaluating mm -hmm. information. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sometimes I refer to this, this idea of the holy trinity of truth detection or I don't know, I'm trying to come up with a better name for it. Mm -hmm. But it's really based on these sort of three pillars and the three related pillars are intellectual humility, which really just means acknowledging what the limits of our knowledge is. We're not all experts on everything. And oftentimes being on a place like the internet, uh, it really um, doesn't incentivize that kind of acknowledgement, right? We all wanna win arguments on the internet. We all want to seem like we know what we're talking about and we have Google right there so we can look up information even though we don't know something. So intellectual humility is really the reverse of that. It's saying, I don't know. Uh, so that's one pillar. The other is cognitive flexibility, which is sort of a related concept, but cognitive flexibility means not only acknowledging that I don't know, but even if I think I know and I believe something, being able to say, but I'm also open to other viewpoints, other evidence, you know, prove me wrong, teach me, you know, I want to, I want to learn. So that's the, the second pillar. And then the third pillar is analytical thinking, which you could define in a number of ways, but it really what it amounts to is slowing down and thinking, even though I want to believe this, maybe I'm wrong. And so let me kind of think a bit before I decide that this piece of information I'm encountering really supports what I want to believe. Uh, and maybe I should think that, you know, this is fake news, or maybe this is a biased source of information. The psychology studies have shown pretty clearly that if you do that slowing down process, and so there's campaigns about like, think before you share, or think before you click. This idea if if you 
tell people and you sort of warn them that this could be bogus information, think about it. We actually become a lot better at discerning what's real or not, or, or fake news or, or truth. So those are my three pillars, this, this combination of those, those three. They're really skills. And, and I think that's an important idea. I think oftentimes we think that people believe false things because they have some sort of cognitive deficits, right? That they're not intellectually humble or they're not cognitively flexible. And yeah, that's partly true. But again, these are skills. These are teachable skills. We all have the ability to take these characteristics on if we want to. I also, I don't know if this is something that you notice or comment on at all, but I tend to see a lot of like what I would consider like polarized thinking or black and white thinking. And it seems like it's tough for people sometimes to live in the gray area of things that there's not necessarily like an absolute right or wrong to some of these very complex kinds of things. I mean, you look at the pandemic, you look at Ukraine, contemporary things going on, like there's a lot of messiness in this and these kinds of things. And I, I wonder like, do you have anything that you could say about that concept? Yeah, for sure. And and so I should say that researching conspiracy theory beliefs is relatively new, but it's a, as you might expect, a very burgeoning, very active area of research. And so for about the past decade, maybe even two decades now, uh, psychologists have been trying to look at why does somebody drift towards conspiracy theories? What makes someone more likely versus not you know, un- unlikely to believe in conspiracy theories. And there's sort of a whole laundry list of cognitive traits. I mean, decreased analytical thinking is one of them. We just talked about analytical thinking, mm-hmm. but another one are specific psychological needs. And one of them, I, there's actually three in one. So I, I describe it as the three C's. The three C's are needs for closure, certainty, and control. And so it gets to exactly what you were saying, which is, we all have those needs. We all like to have explanations. We all like to be certain. Being uncertain is an anxious feeling. But there does seem to be differences, quantitative differences in people's ability to tolerate that uncertainty. And so you brought up the pandemic. That's such a great example. And I think one of the reasons we are seeing so much conspiracy theory belief pop up over the past couple of years is because this has been an extraordinarily unnerving time where authoritative sources don't necessarily have ready answers. Uh, You know, I I said early on in the pandemic, we were initially told that we shouldn't wear masks, right? And then a month or two later, by April of 2020, now the CDC and other organizations were saying, no, no, we're like, yes, you should wear masks. And so that sort of lack of, you know, like, well, what, what do we believe? What do we not? That creates that uncertainty. And sort of ironically or counterintuitively, Research suggests that conspiracy theories, one of the reasons why people find them attractive is that even though the narrative sort of terrifying, right, that nefarious things are going on secretly, it actually provides a narrative that does have a kind of closure, certainty, quality to it. Like this is actually what's happening. Now, as you would, might expect, that doesn't end up being very psychological reassuring, psychologically reassuring. So people mm-hmm. don't feel better because of the uh, the of their conspiracy theory belief, but it does look like they might gravitate towards those narratives because of that, that anxiety. If I've got a leg up on the government or the authority, because I know right. what they're up to, I feel like I've got a little bit more control over the world around me, something like That's that. Right. It, well, exactly. And there's so many, if you think about what are some, you know, many cons- conspiracy theories revolve around real life events, right? Like the, in, in our lifetimes, 
you look sort of similar in age to me, but uh, in our lifetimes, or I, I guess actually before I was born, you know, JFK was a big one, yeah. right? And here, a US president gets shot in public. And that was sort of the prototypical conspiracy theory, you know, for, from the 1960s, at least. This idea of closure and certainty is you kind of have two options. One option is to believe that it's just this lone gunman who, like, you know, it's not even clear why he did it, and but somehow he was able to get at the president. Like that's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Or a pandemic, right? That that a global pandemic, which has claimed you know millions of lives to date, just happened kind of by accident. That this virus you know, mutated in an animal and you know, jumped over to human beings. Like that. That's the uncertainty part. So the conspiracy theory narrative says no, 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 no. Like JFK, this was a CIA plot that you know, then it wasn't the lone gunman. It was the these other actors, which again, that there's a terrifying aspect of that. But then it actually becomes then more preventable because it's not just a random act. Yeah. Uh, and same with the pandemic, right? If it was a lab leak and the Chinese deliberately developed as a bioweapon and set it set it out. It's actually more reassuring on a certain level than just it just randomly happened in nature. That makes a lot of sense to be able to assign some kind of a causality to something, makes it more predictable. Another of these, what I sometimes call cognitive quirks that are associated with belief in conspiracy theories, another one is something called need for uniqueness. So there's this idea that people who gravitate towards conspiracy theories also sort of get off on this idea that like, I've stumbled upon the truth. I have this secret privilege knowledge and the rest of you people are just sheep that are following you know, mainstream thinking. That there's something empowering about that, that I have this privilege information. Yeah, so it sort of puts you and the in-group, the ones who are in the know, and I, there's, I guess, some level of feeling of superiority over the rest right. of the world. Yes. Yeah, very interesting. You also talked in some of your posts, some about cognitive quirks. These are kind of interesting. I, uh, what can you say about them? So I mentioned some of them, the three C's, the need for control, certainty, closure. There's certain uh, cognitive biases, for example, something called a teleologic bias. This is the idea that some of us uh, are really more likely to attribute causality to some sort of higher purpose, right? The idea that like everything happens for a reason, whether it's due to a supreme being or what have you. And, you know, part of it is just um, in terms of cognitive quirks, part of it is one's propensity to be mistrustful and that, that that operates on a sort of continuum with actually delusional paranoia. I should say though that, so I have a couple comments about this cognitive quirks or, or the research that's been done. I think one of them is to keep in mind that these are associational relationships. So of course, association doesn't mean causality per se. And I also wanna make clear that when we say something like the need for closure is something that might underlie conspiracy theory belief, it's not like, conspiracy theory believers have need for closure and I don't. Like we all have need for closure. So these are quantitative differences. These are group mean averages differences. So it just means that you have more, more or less. And it doesn't mean that every person who has belief in a conspiracy theory has all you know, six or eight of the, co the cognitive quirks that I just mentioned. So I think the better way to understand conspiracy theories 
is first on an individual basis. If one person believes in the conspiracy theory, there might be a different explanation for why that happened compared to another person who even believes the same conspiracy theory. And the model that, that I like to use and have written about in my academic work that I think is sort of designed, if you will, through the perspective of, of a clinician who's working with people who might have these kinds of beliefs, my model is really based on two foundational and interactive characteristics. One is misinformation, which we've already talked about before, and the other is mistrust. And that's why my definition of conspiracy theory has to do with rejecting an authoritative account in favor of this more conspiratorial narrative. And I think if we understand conspiracy theory beliefs like that, it's actually a little bit more helpful, particularly as, as a clinician or somebody who's working with, you know, maybe it's just a family member, uh, to understand that they believe that because they mistrust authoritative sources and they're exposed to information that, uh, that tells them something else. Yeah. Could you, uh, could you say a little bit more about mistrust of authoritative places? Like where does that stem from? Why would people be so mistrusting about the authorities? Yeah. So one thing to say off the bat is that we do seem to be living at a time of unprecedented mistrust. Now I'll qualify that. I don't mean unprecedented in the history of you know, mankind. Uh, but if you look at our, our lifetimes dating back to the 1960s, trust in government, trust in the media, trust in other institutions of authority, politicians, certainly, those are really have been at all time lows over the past decade. Hmm. Uh, and even there are some metrics like looking at trust of your fellow neighbor, that kind of thing. So not just trust about information or institutional integrity, but just trust in terms of, you know, do you trust this person to stab you in the back metaphorically or, or figuratively. Yeah. So we're really struggling with that right now in terms of uh, mistrust. Now, why is that happening? I think there's a number of different reasons. And it, again, it kind of depends on what institution of authority we're talking about. I mentioned uh, just a while ago that early on in the pandemic, the CDC and the World Health Organization, the US Surgeon General were telling us don't wear masks. So there are sort of different flavors of mistrust. Some of them are on a more paranoid continuum where I just don't miss, I, I just don't trust people because that's how I am. Much mistrust when we talk about social groups has to do with uh, in-groups and out-groups. Some of that is rooted in racism. If you look, for example, in the African-American population here in the United States, there's a long history of medical mistrust and a greater rate of conspiracy theories related to HIV and AIDS, what causes it, you know, was the CIA involved, that kind of thing. That's been attributed to a long history of uh, abuses by the medical establishment uh, within the African-American population as exemplified by the Tuskegee experiment. Mm -hmm. So there are also, so, so the mistrust is on one side, there might be sort of pathological types of mistrust, but it's also important to acknowledge that there's earned mistrust and institutions of authority, I think, have stumbled in the past decade or so in terms of losing that trust. So again, whether we're talking about news providers or the CDC or, or you know, and governments. Uh, so it's, there's really many, many different reasons that lead people to be mistrustful. Hmm. Let, let's just talk just for a moment about the CDC and the medical establishment, the government and the pandemic. The way that I looked at this from the very beginning was they were doing the best they can, stumbling with limited information to try to figure out the best advice to give to the public. And that flip-flop back and forth several times as new information was coming out and, and they were struggling with it. But do you think that the messages that they were putting out to the public, they went about it in an inefficient and ineffective way? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So for me, it kind of goes back to what we're saying about need for certainty. Yeah. The reality is in a situation like the pandemic and in a lot of questions that are, we fall under the umbrella of science, the reality is there's uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you talk about medical specialties and what specialty you go into, uh, psychiatry is like the medical specialty where there's the most uncertainty. Right. I don't, I don't, can't really tell you what causes schizophrenia. I can't really tell you why a treatment might work or might, right? So this uncertainty part, that's sort of part of science. And again, especially if we're talking about a new virus causing a global pandemic that we've never encountered before, yeah, there's going to be uncertainty. And so I think part of it, when I'm, when I'm sort of getting, trying to get institutions of authority to own mistrust, part of it is just educating people that it goes back to what I said about intellectual humility. The answer is we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think you do have to be a little transparent about that. But that then there's this trade-off between, you know, being a voice of authority and saying, don't worry, don't panic, you know, everything's going to be okay. You know, you have to balance that because uncertainty can be terrifying. So I think the lesson, the reason I keep bringing up masks is we certainly now still two to three years later, the scientific evidence that masks can be effective to halt transmission is very, very, very convincing. There are many studies that have been done. And yet, I regularly encounter people who say, nope, I don't believe it. I don't think that's true. And so I think the misstep in terms of, let's say, the CDC was, I think there's, I haven't heard them sort of admit this or state this, but I think there's a general sense that in part, we were told early on not to wear masks because people were you know, going on runs in the grocery store and buying out all the disinfectant and buying out, you know, cleaning supplies. And what we didn't want to happen as we were preparing for the, the surge was that N95 masks would disappear so that you, so that healthcare workers wouldn't have access to them. So I think part of the message early on was, look, don't like, we need to make sure we have masks for hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so I think the misstep in part is what you said, it's uncertainty. Uh, but in part, it's, it's transparency. You know, the, the way you really win over people in terms of gaining their trust is to be transparent about those things. And so I think that that's part of what, what we saw happen. But, mm-hmm. but part of it also is just a fundamental misunderstanding that, yeah, I mean, that, that is the scientific process. I think when we talk specifically about conspiracy theories related to science, there's often a, a sort of sense of like, well, but, you know, last year we were told that, you know, you shouldn't um, take an aspirin a day. But now five years later, we said, well, you should, or, or vice versa. And people interpret that, the general public sometimes interprets it, that as see scientists or science, quote unquote, doesn't know what it's talking about. Whereas, as I like to say, that's really the strength of science, right? The strength of science and, and analytical thinking is being able to change your beliefs based on the evidence. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of scientific skepticism, though, is different than denialism. It's not just saying, well, I don't believe it. It's no, look at the evidence and let that guide what, what our beliefs are and, and what we agree are facts. So let's talk about evidence for a moment. So I'm a psychologist. I do cognitive behavior therapy. I have a patient coming into my office. We're talking about trying to take a look at his or her belief systems, assessing whether they're uh, based on any reality or not, trying to decide whether they're irrational or not, whether or not to refute them. And the patient may have very different ideas about what constitutes valid evidence that I may have. How do we distinguish the difference between the evidence we're looking at, whether it's valid or, or not valid? Right. Yeah, no, uh, I, I often think of these issues in CBT terms. I think it's a very useful method to work with somebody to, to go through things. 
Um, and I mentioned before the distinction between delusions and conspiracy theories, where when we're working with someone who's delusional, or for that matter, someone who's depressed and has cognitive distortions related to that depression, right? I'm, I'm no good. I'm a failure. No one at work likes me. You know, there is a sort of, that, that's the, the sort of beauty of CBT. It's like, let, let's start with some hypotheses. Let's go out in the world, do your homework, and let's collect evidence, right? And then so somebody comes back and they say, well, you know, my boss actually said I did a good job on that project. So, right. So I think that that that's sort of when CBT goes well, you're operating on this sort of common ground where you're agreeing on what objective evidence is. That doesn't always work so well when you're working with a psychotic patient, although certainly CBT can be applied to psychosis because the patient again says, well, no, my evidence is that God told me. You can't tell me that God didn't tell me this. <laughs> and I think on the other side of that spectrum, the challenge when we talk about conspiracy theories is that the evidence is out there because again, somebody found it on the internet or for that matter, they watched it on you know this TV network or, or news network, or they read it in an article somewhere or saw it in a YouTube video. And so then it really comes down to kind of needing to start from this discussion with people about how, this is why I say mistrust is so important. You need to start from a place of understanding why people use certain sources of information and not use, you know, why don't you trust the CDC? Why do you look at this other uh, you know, source of information? And until you're able to kind of sort that out, then things like CBT are going to be difficult for the reasons yeah. you said, because there's not this agreement on what objective evidence is. Yeah, it's tough, Joe, because like <laughs> I've had people come in saying, well, you know, I think these vaccines have microchips in them right. that are going to get into our bodies and, and can can track us. That one is a little more out there. It's a little bit easier to work through the, the distortions and the re refuting that. But then you'll have people talking about, well, you know, the government is working with the pharmaceutical companies to try to sell these vaccines and make a ton of money and they're not actually effective. And then it becomes a little bit more difficult as a clinician because honestly, I'm not sitting there in the boardroom of the uh, pharmaceutical companies or the cabinet meetings with Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whatever to know what their actual underlying intentions are. Like they seem far-fetched to me, but it's a little harder for me to come up with evidence right. to refute that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really is a challenge and it, it, it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about there's, there's evidence in, in terms of why we hold beliefs, there's evidence in terms of you know, data and you know, reading a research study. But again, mostly what we're doing is we're typically believing things because someone we trust tells us about it. Uh, you know, I have a biology background. I majored in molecular biology at MIT. So, you know, I've gone and looked at some of the clinical trials of the vaccines and I have a reasonably good grasp on, you know, what the data are. Uh, same thing with the lab leak hypothesis. You know, I've read papers about that either, you know, argue for or against lab leak. But, you know, there's a lot I don't understand in, in those papers. And so whether we're talking about even something like the flat earth, right? I mean, most of the reason why we believe that the earth is round is because we've seen pictures of it. Scientists, astronauts have told us that. And what happens when you get to talk about a flat earther is suddenly they talk about, well, you know, I've done this experiment with a gyroscope, or that was this YouTube video I saw where they did. And then you kind of get in the weeds. And so there are people who do this sort of professionally, these are, uh, or debunking. 
debunking is this is kind of a funny thing people who get into debunking because you have to kind of go down the rabbit hole with people and sift through all of that information and say well i know what you're talking about you're talking about this one paper that said this well you know and that's not something that most of us can do when we're doing something like CBT. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, don't, I don't, I don't, yeah, we don't a, have access to all that information. Like, you know, we don't have time to read every exactly. piece of information no. that people are looking at. Right. Right. And, and I don't think it's necessarily healthy to do so. So yeah. I think there's a great role for that. You know, you can go to places like Reddit or, you know, p- people like a guy named Mick West to sort of do this uh, professionally. And he, you know, he, he has a lot of knowledge about these things and we really get down there in the weeds, but I, I don't, it's certainly not not practical for us to do that if we're talking about our our dad or a brother right we're like how do we get them to come out of the rabbit hole and I, I, I always say that it's not a good idea just to jump down there with the person mm-hmm. and then as clinicians yeah that that one's difficult too i will say that if we look at the more evidence-based interventions for belief in misinformation including conspiracy theories probably at the top of the list is what we call instead of debunking pre-bunking this also goes by the also a different name of inoculation strategies. Mm. So really the most effective thing is to beat misinformation to the punch and say, you might be hearing about such and such. Well, here's the re- real story. Uh, and for example, we have seen some of that with regard to the Ukraine situation right now, this idea mm. of you're going to you know, encounter this information. Here's the real deal. That, of course, then requires, though, that we're sort of on the leading edge of knowing what misinformation is out there so we can beat it to the punch. And that's something I think that we collectively have to do, whether we're talking about individuals or you know, those institutions of authority, is we have to sort of win the, the war with misinformation by, by sort of fighting that in, in the space where misinformation is encountered. What could you say about people who have a family member or a friend who's deeply into a conspiracy theory or a belief system that's yeah. really frustrating for them to deal with. Yeah, I mean, my general advice there is again, I, I I don't think it's a great idea to you know get into it with people about these things. I think that our role for our loved ones is really about providing some support and maintaining a connection to that person. Uh, you know, the stereotype during the pandemic was that there were people who were out of work or they were. You know, not going into work, they were staying at home, and because of that, they suddenly are spending you know ten times more time online, going down that proverbial rabbit hole, and there really is a sort of very isolating aspect to that. And so we read many newspaper articles talking about uh, how family relationships have been destroyed because of QAnon or because of people falling down the rabbit hole. So I think if we talk about those kind of relationships, the most important thing is to actually maintain ties with those folks you know, whether it's having them over for dinner or giving them a call or emailing them. But then, you know, if the conversation starts going to, but no, you don't understand Hillary Clinton eats babies, you know, saying, hey, like, (laughs) okay, I know you believe that. Let's just, let's chill and let's talk about, you know, basketball or something like that, rather than always sort of just going on that narrative. Uh, And as you know, that's Often something that happens, for example, when you, when you do talk with delusional patients, like all they want to talk about is the one like really, really important thing. Yeah. And sometimes the healthier thing is to pull them out of that and let's, you know, it doesn't even have to be talking. Let's go do something together, right? Let's go take a walk or, or something like that and helping people not get just sucked down into that isolated sort of rabbit hole existence. Mm-hmm. Joe, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts or anything you want to leave us with here. One thing that I do want to make clear to people, 
is that when we talk about these things, we're not talking about mental illness for the most part. Right. There's a partisan divide in the country where, you know, depending on our political affiliations, we're more likely to believe in this, whereas our political opponents are more likely to believe that. And I can't tell you, I read so many articles that say, oh, the reason is because this person's crazy or this, these people are delusional. Or, so uh, as mental health professionals, I, I think it's important for us to, to sort of quash that, that idea. And so there is this quotation about you know, insanity is a sane response to an insane society. Interestingly, that has been attributed to a number of different people. It's not totally clear who's, who said that, mm -hmm. but I think it's a great way to understand what's going on right now. There is a sort of non-mentally ill, but insanity that we're dealing with in society. It's a sickness and the sickness is really built on the two things that I mentioned earlier, which is this combination of mistrust and misinformation. Mistrust is pervasive. That mistrust makes us vulnerable to the misinformation that is all around there out there in the world. And so I think the best thing that we can do is have honest conversations about trust, who deserves our trust, who doesn't, and really be aware how much misinformation and deliberate disinformation is out there and what their sort of ulterior motives are. And yeah, when we talk about conspiracy theories, encourage people to think about the real conspiracy theory behind the conspiracy theory. Well, Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a really interesting conversation, and I appreciate your commentary on these issues. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.